This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. So what I need the 21 of you to do is envision what is the operational environment, not for the military, what's the world going to look like? What are we going to be doing in 2035 to 2050? We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Welcome to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. We are absolutely thrilled to have you here today. Now, Phyllis Wilson, who is sitting here with us today, has had a remarkable career in the Army and beyond. You served for 37 years in the Army as a military intelligence voice intercept operator on top of various other roles, including serving around the globe, visiting more than 35 countries. That's no small chunk of change. And including a deployment for Operation Iraqi Freedom as an intel analyst with the special operations community, holding two master's degrees. You're a registered nurse. Slices, dices, makes Julian fries. <laughs> I can't cook. <laughs> that part's not okay. true. <laughs> okay. Doesn't make Julian fries. But to fast forward today, you're the president of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation, which we're going to discuss a little bit more about later today. But- First, I would love to get a sense from you, what drew you to military service? I knew nothing about military service. My dad was born and raised Amish, horse and buggy Amish. Really? So nobody in my family on either side had served, but I was trying to make my way through college because I love education, as you Mm -hmm. talked about, voracious reader even as a child. I wanted to become a doctor. And I had no idea that that meant eight years of college, but I was working my way through community college, a couple classes at a time, Mm self-paying. And I was turning 20 years old and realized this will take forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So as happenstance would be, there was a, a military recruiting station along the route that I drove to and from community college. And I decided one time I'd seen the sign about college money and I thought, well, let's find out. Well, as I said, my dad, being raised Pennsylvania Dutch, spoke Pennsylvania Dutch, the German. Fascinating. That was his first language. And so when he would get together with his nine siblings and they would sit and laugh and talk in that language that I couldn't tell what they were saying, I was so jealous as a child. So I took some high school French and Latin, but it certainly didn't get me that far. And as fate would be, the Army was offering not only... Uh, college money, but an enlistment bonus if I would learn German because oh. the the wall was still up when I was looking for that. And they needed voice intercept people to listen with headphones mm-hmm. to people in East Germany. Mm-hmm. And we had to know the language well enough to comprehend it. So I signed up and went to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. What an extraordinary culture clash. To turn to the decision that you want to discuss today You worked on the chief of staff of the Army's strategic studies group from 2015 to 2016, Mm -hmm. where your mission was to conduct a year of academic research on behalf of a senior leader of the U.S. Army, who at the time was General Milley. Could you first walk us through what this initiative, what this group was, what the task was, and 
for our audience, what are the importance of these kinds of groups, right? It's sort of from the outside looking in, it's sort of this opaque, like, wait, they did a study, but they're so much more important and they're such important drivers of policy change and evaluation. So I just gave you a whole bunch of questions. Feel you did. Let me see if well. I can do them in order. Good test. <laughs> She's not taking notes, ladies and gents. I am not writing anything down. I'm just listening as closely as I can. Well, what happened was I had served in the Army. I joined in 1981, and now we're in 2015. So I had served mixed and matched, both active duty and Army Reserve. And that's when I had gone back to become a registered nurse and worked my way up to being a director of nursing and civilian hospitals and long-term care facilities. And uh, after 9-11 happened and Joint Special Operations Command found my name and number and contacted me and I wanted to be in the fight. I wanted to help any way I could. So that's what I did. And I pretty much was full-time in the Army from 2002 all the way. Now suddenly it's 2015. I've just completed wow. being the command chief warrant officer of the entire Army Reserve, a little over 200,000 soldiers. We traveled all over to Incredible. visit the troops and been privy to everything up on Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. as well as the inner machinations of the Pentagon. Getting back to the decision you wanted to talk about this study and that you're put into this group in 2015. And what was General Milley's intention for this study at that point? Well, General Odierno, the prior chief of staff of the okay. Army, had actually organized this strategic studies group. Apparently, the Navy already had one and the Army never had. And this was his own individual personal think tank that didn't have any of the normal for a chief warrant officer five to go talk to the chief of staff of the Army or for a major to go and, and say, hey, sir, this is what we're saying. That's just not done mm -hmm. in normal army or military fashion. This gave us direct access to the boss on a regular and frequent basis so he could re-steer us in, in the right direction if we were going off the path he wanted. But General Odierno had started it. We were cohort number four that came in. So three had been under General Odierno. General Milley had just been named as the incoming chief of staff of the army. We were all coming in and getting our initial foundation and educational blocks the first couple of months, how to red team, how to do all the kind of things that we needed to. And then General Milley came in to assume the position and we, we started talking to him as the chief of staff of the Army. And he said, you know, I have inherited the Army of Abrams from back in the 70s and early 80s. The only thing that I'm going to make an impact on is the Army of 35 to 50. And if I don't start looking at what's it going to be like then, I can't influence it. So what I need the 21 of you to do is envision what is the operational environment, not for the military. What's the world going to look like? What are we going to be doing in 2035 to 2050? No easy feat, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, so, it's, it's you know, yeah. no big deal. <laughs> just, but we were given complete ability to meet with anybody from Elon Musk to Bill Gates to Every nation, we even had three of the fellows that traveled to China for three weeks and met there. But it, I was surprised and I did not know, I have to tell you, the difference between a strategist and a futurist. I learned it that, yep. in that yep. year. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know that there was a, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a futurist. <laughs> but as we looked at future studies, we were finding some countries were already looking out to 2070 and beyond. And I thought, how can you even place any kind of a academic best bet against what things will look like at that point, given the technological advances over, that move so quickly? We parsed ourselves into basically four key lenses. Mm -hmm. And so I fell into the allies lens because with my German and I had worked in, with NATO and other things. So I, 
I really had Europe, which was not a bad place to travel to. You know, I went to the real Chatham House. I, I worked there. How amazing is right. that? I, they've got a rule in everything. I stayed at the In-N-Out Club. Nice. Right down the street. Nice. Yes. So it was lovely. And that was fun to sit and talk. This was as they were talking about Brexit and whether yeah. that would happen and whether Trump would be elected because this is 2015 going into 16. Right. He'd already announced and people leaving over there were like, <laughs> this will never happen. And so, but Brexit was the, the conversation of the day as well. And while we talked about that, we tried to envision really, you know, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. So talking with Europeans about self-driven vehicles and how the truck driver, his stipend will be, he will get dividends off this driverless vehicle. I think of it, I liken it to the small oil rigs that we see pumping out mm -hmm. across the country and people own part of that and they get a dividend check either every month or every quarter. And it's the same kind of thing. So no human being is actually doing that pumping anymore. But the people that own it get the royalties, and it would be the same for that sort of thing. And we looked at universal basic income, but we looked much more at the technological advances and who would likely catch up to us before we might be able to leap back ahead and then give the boss that kind of information. You could argue, based on that study, shortly thereafter, Futures Command, Army Futures Command, was stood up oh, down in okay. Austin. Okay. So um, I, he, yeah. he seriously was looking, and now as the chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, is corralling all of these disparate ideas into setting the conditions so that the entire Department of Defense has some goals and ideas longer term, because we don't even get to work in really four-year cycles. We work on one-year funding, and there is no way to project long-term uh, continuity and planning in the fashion which we're funded. The fashion which we're funded and also the way the news cycles work, we are so short-termist. And mm -hmm. so taking that longer view takes deliberate work. Absolutely. So you're now six years post-study. What were some of the key bets that you made? Were they accurate? Well, you know, many well, of them... They, they haven't run yet to 27 or Although we did forecast an economic downturn in 2021. Oh, well, there you go. So we got that one right. <laughs> Doesn't mean all the rest will be. I know, yeah. not one you want to bet on, mm -hmm. right? The 21 of us went out and we had a baseline of questions that we all asked and we all put it into what we called the gunculator. It was our database, right? And so we turned it all out, made our own sausage. But we also had where we could freeform questions. So when somebody piqued your entrance on a particular topic, you could still run that rabbit down, right? Yep. Which is really important because suddenly when you get back and you outbrief with everybody else or like, we didn't think about that. We need to. So we'd go back and ask the question to some of the folks that we had already gone out and personally met with so that we could now close that loop and, and have more data points. So we ended up with over 8,000 discrete interviews. We did good. We how, wait, how many were you? On 21 of 20, us. 8,000. Total. We Did you busy. sleep? That no, year? no, not clearly much. not. <laughs> it, was, it was an amazing opportunity. And we felt not really the weight of the world, but we certainly felt the weight of, if you've ever met General Mark Milley, <laughs> that gentleman can be very intimidating when he chooses to be. He will push back as hard as you allow him to push back on you. Mm -hmm. But if you absolutely adamantly believe in your heart of hearts that you are right and stand your ground, you are golden. Hmm. But he yeah. needs to know that you absolutely believe in it yeah. to your core or why should he buy into it you know it's fair so so that was the thing so we went out and we did all of those studies and then trying to put this 600 plus page compendium 
together was a bit of a nightmare because you have 21 strong-willed type A people trying to decide what needs to go in and what should stay out. If we could return to that question that I posed earlier, the impacts of these kinds of studies, what role do you see these studies playing in the overall machinery of the Department of Defense? I think the goodness of these more standalone little fellowships, these cohorts, is that we were given unfettered access, both up and down. And laterally, we could visit with anybody. Which is extraordinary in DOD terms, like having access. I mean, like it seems sort of like you're an academic. You should be able to talk to anybody. No, in the Department of Defense, having access to these senior leaders and externally, that is a huge deal. Exactly. And we had nobody that, that kept us from when we needed to speak with General Milley. Normally, of course, as a, as a cohort, not one-on-one, -on -one, that would have been crazy. <laughs> but, you know, when it was time and we needed some, some checkpoints and we wanted to give him information, he also, voracious reader, and he wanted us to each week, every one of us, all 21, provided a one-page book review to him. Really? And it was any topic that we found of interest. So one of those that I, I clearly recall was, is a book, it's a novel called One Second After, and it's about an EMP attack. Now I'm signals intelligence. So EMPs, mm -hmm. electromagnetic pulse attack of the United States that takes our entire grid out. Your cars won't start, your fridges don't work, your power grid is down, your phones don't work. And the study, which this was all based on a congressional blue ribbon panel the report came out the same day, though, as the 9-11 committee's report came out. So it just it got no resonation whatsoever right, in the right. media. But one particular author picked it up, shook it off and looked through it and said, oh, my God, if this really happened, more than 50 percent, according to the, the study, more than 50 percent of Americans will be dead within 12 months. It's just incredible. And I just felt like that was one of those things that the boss needed to know from somebody that believed that this was, in fact, very easy. It, mm -hmm. was, it was fired from off a ship. You know, they didn't have to come in with a suitcase or do anything. There were two ships on each coast and off they went. And this is what happened to us. Yeah. So this really fascinating book that then was one second after, I think it was one year after, and then there was an, a third in the series. And so we, you had to call this entire storyline down into a one pager. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but he got 21 of these. And you always knew you had hit the gold mine when there was any kind of either inquiry for additional information back from the boss or you got it back with some kind of markup on it. And it came back to you. You're like, yes, I think I want to frame this one, you know, because <laughs> you knew it, it had struck a chord with him. Yeah. And it, sometimes you just want to bring these things the one thing we know is finite 24 hours in a day. He can only read so much. He can look at so much. And you can only ingest so much information into your brain before I swear some of it's got to go to make room for new. <laughs> That's fascinating. So smart with smart power, we're, we're looking at the extent to which having women in these positions it affects public policy decision making and its outcomes. And so reflecting on this experience, to what extent do you feel that your gender played a role in your approach to the analysis and, mm -hmm. and your approach to being on the team or, or, or not? Well, there were five women in the 21 group and we were very, boy, as different as night and day, as yeah. different as the men are, I would say. But I do think from my own personal lens, as you can imagine, being a nurse, being a clinician and looking at things from different lenses within the lens of just the allies. So when we were looking at ideas of how would all-out war in Europe, how would that impact the human beings? I was looking at the human factor of it. Yeah. 
tremendously. That that struck accord for me personally. But I'm also very gadget oriented. Mm -hmm. So the idea of self-driving whatevers, of drone swarms, of all of the potentialities that we had that could pull more human beings off from the battlefield and put more technology in there was something that I was really enamored with the ideas of we're not there yet, but could we be there by 2035 to 50? And I think, you know, not that anybody else was not looking at it with a similar look, but how can we save lives and how can we minimize risk to significant trauma or injury? You know, I've seen too much trauma. We've seen too much injury. The good or bad of war is medicine mm -hmm. improves. That's right. You know, I mean, so the golden hour, like trauma medicine during Afghanistan was. Right. The number of men and women that survived that would not have even yeah. 10 years prior because of the advances in medicine. Mm -hmm. But I'd love for us never have to use advances yeah. in medicine on the battlefield. So the idea of technology was super important to me personally. And then looking at, you know, our allies and, and all of these technically advanced nations that, especially in Western Europe, so being able to go to Paris and, and talk to leadership there, both on the government side as well as on the military side, was hugely informative for me in a way that I hadn't really thought about it. They, they gave us information and sometimes in classified environments because most all of us carried a TSSCI. So we had opportunities to gather some information, and then we'd give it to our embassy who would then bring it back to us mm -hmm. because we had no way to courier ourselves. But for the most part, it was all open source. It, I mean, there's so much information in the open source intelligence environment that I think a lot of people somewhat discount. Which is a shame. I, I feel it like the community is. is getting a bit better about that, but it was still a long ways to go. I think you can get an 80% solution through open source, honestly, yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So would you... Reflecting on what you just said, do you feel that being a woman helped you frame things in terms of the human dimension? So what what I've heard in other interviews, and this is a theme that keeps coming over up over and over again, is that it's the the centrality of people and how important people are to the equation of war, the equations of statecraft, the equations of international affairs. So not starting at the state, looking at the individual. So does that resonate at all with you? Or? It, it, it really does. Yeah. Because I think, you know, whether it's a family unit or an individual human being, the idea of none of us are in favor of war. But we also recognize that there are powers that be that are evil. And there are times when we're called upon to answer, to defend. And if we do that, how can we do it in a manner in which we don't have gold star families, in a manner in which we don't have individuals that are dealing with, I used to think, God, if I lost a leg, just kill me. You know, I don't want to live. If I, and now I see such a difference in that. And I thought, gosh, what a, what a little crazy thought I had there, because now I can just see so much opportunity as a result of the technology that we have have come to give these human beings. But how do we safeguard? How can we get to a point where war would not be required or, you know, we could just duke it out one person in the ring against another person from the same, from that country. And let's be done with it that way. How can we, I know that's a little bit pie in the sky. We're always going to have wars. It's human nature. But yes, you're absolutely right. For me, I think as a female on the team and a mom who gets to proudly claim eight kids and 14 grandbabies. Holy moly, I've got one and I can barely survive. <laughs> We've been busy, but I love the grandbabies. They're, God, I would have had them first if I would have known. That was, they're too much fun. But, but when you're looking at setting the conditions for your next generations, your own blood, what are you doing to safeguard the country? No pressure. You know, how, what can we say as a group of 21 people 
that might influence what a key senior leader in this country might take under advisement. And we were so fortunate, like you said, to not go through the normal staffing actions and maybe two, three weeks, two, three months Mm -hmm. later, it finally makes it to his desk. Right. No, we never had to deal with that because if we were on the wrong track, we needed him to tell us quickly so we could correct course and get this data to him in the time that he wanted it. And also just for our listeners, that kind of staffing of a, of a product, of, a, of a, a report within the Pentagon is also quite remarkable. Because most of the time, these, these studies, they get staffed around to the different offices and die this horrible death of a thousand paper cuts. And then you read it at the end and it's like at the third grade le- reading level and you're like, what, what just happened? But so being able to go like what they would say VFR direct to the boss mm-hmm. and sort of give them a product that didn't have to go through the, the process coordination channels is really quite remarkable. Well, so before we conclude, Phyllis, I'd love to hear more about your leadership at the Military Women's Memorial, which is marking its 25th anniversary this year. So in your view, what is the importance of having a national memorial for women service members specifically, both for veterans and women just entering the ranks? You know, I will tell you until a couple of years ago, I didn't think we needed one. Really? <laughs> I did. Really? I was a soldier. Yeah. I wasn't a woman soldier. I wasn't a female. Yep. So I was a soldier. And I was busy proving that I was every bit as good as any other soldier Mm-hmm. I didn't say, regardless of gender, I was as good as any other soldier, at least at my fighting weight then. <laughs> you know, if I weighed 120, I was still jumping out of airplanes. I was doing what I was yeah. able to do and what legally permitted to do as a female. It never dawned on me that the reason I hadn't been able to go to jump school earlier was because there was so limited on the females that could attend. So when I finally had that opportunity, I just thought, well, I'm finally at the right place. I'm in an airborne unit. Everything is working. But I still had to like bother people a lot to get the opportunity to go down to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Now it's like, why, what was I thinking? But it was, it was lovely. And I just wanted to do it so desperately. That was awesome. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting as well, because that's another theme that I hear over and over again. This, it's almost like we we don't want to recognize that that gender plays a part of it. Like I'm a female, I'm I'm an expert. I'm not a female expert. Correct. I'm an expert. Yeah. But that said, as I reflect on my own career and my own life, absolutely gender has played all sorts of different roles in shaping me, in shaping some of the decisions that I've made. And it's almost liberating to be able to reflect on that and 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 yeah, appreciate it. And 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 this is who I am. You know, and I couldn't agree more. There, I'm very proud to be a woman. Proud mom, proud grandma, proud everything. But I just thought from a military perspective, you know, we've been fighting to prove that we are as good as. And the memorial opened in 1997. I did not learn about it until 2013 when I was the command chief of the Army Reserve and a soldier was getting promoted there and I was invited. So I went and I walked in and I'm looking around going, what is this place and how come I didn't know? So there, we have a national database where every woman that has ever served or is serving, we encourage them to put their firsthand account story into our database. So we have 303,000 of those now. Fascinating. But we also have, it's like a museum inside where we start with the Revolutionary War and the women that disguised themselves as men and took musket balls in the leg and dug it out themselves, lest they be found out to be a woman disguised as a man. And be rudely sent home for, how dare you, to the Civil War, same thing. And our only Medal of Honor recipient, Dr. Mary Walker, who offered her surgical services and was rebuffed because she was a woman. But ultimately, as the war raged on, they needed her. 
And so she served, was taken prisoner of war by the Confederates, held in a POW camp, and then ultimately was awarded the Medal of Honor, but also the only woman to get it, also the only woman to ever have it taken away. At the end of the war, that was the first war that the Medal of Honor was awarded. They said, we got a little carried away on issuing that. So they revoked 900. Now, to be fair, 899 were men, but one was Mary Walker's. And this little spunkmeister said, (laughs) come and get it. (laughs) I ain't taking it off. And she didn't. She died in 1917 and was buried with her Medal of Honor. But she was tromped up on Capitol Hill many times demanding that they reinstate. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter reinstated. So she got it. She lost it. She got it back again. Only woman ever. So we tell that story all the way to the women of today. And it's just incredible. I'm thought, how could I not know my own lineage? Mm-hmm. It's so much fun. And yeah, we're, we're going to turn 25 October 18th of mm-hmm. this year. So it's, it's been a, a wild ride. I've been there for three years. And I've totally changed my mind, partly because as I was applying for this, Mm-hmm. I have disabled veteran plates on my car. I am 100% rated because I have autoimmune. They think toxic exposure. So my liver is attacking itself. Um, I may need a liver transplant somewhere down the road. So with that and a few other things like bad feet, probably from jumping out of airplanes. It doesn't um, help. <laughs> it doesn't help. So I had this disabled veterans plates on my car and I park in a veteran parking space by myself, hop out of my car and a gentleman quickly goes, excuse me. That's veteran parking. Oh, no. I said, yes, sir. I, I know. I wanted to tell him I can read too, but I didn't. <laughs> I was, yes, sir. And, he's, and then he says the next thing that always seems to happen. And many women, many women, thousands have agreed. He said, is your husband with you? No. Smart Alec Me says, if that's a pickup line, it sucked. <laughs> So he comes walking over. He's, he said, so you were in? Yes. How many years did you serve? And I told him 37. He says, BS, you can't serve that long. 30 years is the most. And I said, well, that's true for almost all of the ranks, but there's a few of us that we are allowed to stay longer. And I joked again, said, until we can get it right, they're not going to kick us out. So we continued. We found out we were both airborne. We both jumped out of airplanes. I said, well, you know, I want to thank you for your service. He did not reciprocate. So as we ended the conversation, I went in to get my few groceries, ready-made, you know, toaster Mm -hmm. items. Not not Julian Fry's. (laughs) No Julian Fry's allowed. Um, And I just got to thinking, if I had been a man, whether I had served or not, and had the audacity to park in a veteran parking spot, he would have never said a word. And that's really what caused me to dust off that nonprofit resume I had sort of sitting off to the side. I had two more days until the end for their, their national search. And I said, you know what? I guess we aren't there yet. I better do this. And be careful what you apply for, because now I'm working my butt off in in ways that I thought you could get a butt chewing from General Milley. (laughs) This is way harder, but it's it's the best job I've ever had. That's wonderful. And and thank you so much for for taking this on. Yeah. Um, And on on all of our behalves, raising awareness and and and, and, and giving this home, this space for women who have served. And I've never served, but women in the military, you've, you're there, you've served, you're, you're a key part of this community and growing part of this community. It's not sufficient to just sort of bolt on women to these programs and systems and processes. 
women are here and have voices and and are a part of the conversation. And thank you so much for being a part of this Women's Military Memorial that helps us remember that and, and helps us take that that forward. One of our best things that we're doing starting October 7th is the launch of our Women, Peace and Security program. So the WPS program is important. And General Scotty Miller, the last commanding really? general. Yes, yes. Yeah. I served with him at Special Operations oh, really? Command. Okay. So Scotty Miller is coming up to have a fireside chat with us at the memorial. We're at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery on October 7th. And we also have not only women of the cultural support teams, those women that went with the Rangers and Special Forces, but also their Afghan women counterparts, their female tactical platoon members that made it out are with us. And so they'll be there for our WPS on October 7th. You're welcome to come join us. Absolutely. Yes. So it's a public event? It's a public event. We'd love to have you join us. And we'll also be live streaming it as well. So you can go to our website, Military Women's Memorial or womensmemorial.org, and you can see all of the events. But where our programming is really where we're, we're getting bang on for, for the buck. The WPS is a quarterly event. This is the first one. So Scotty Miller is actually our honorary chair, and he's helping us to craft what each theme will be for each of the quarterly. We're going to do a four-year minimum WPS. So we have 16 of these events coming up. That's fantastic. But I have to tell you that the Afghan women that made it out, a couple of their, their counterparts from the female tactical platoon did not. And uh, they have been sent horrific photos of one of the women that the Taliban did get their hands on, basically letting them know if you ever come back to this country, the same fate will befall you. So um, they're, they're proud to be here. And we're actually working up on Capitol Hill already. They want to be part of the United States military. So how do we help these Afghanis that have made it here to the United States? How do we help these Afghan women in particular follow up with what they've done? They, they trained and they served side by side with the U.S. in their country. And now they want to serve with us in their new country. Absolutely. Is, and is there, for our listeners, is there anywhere online that people can, can help out or, or register their support? Is, is anywhere that they can look for, that, for this activity? Well, of course, we are a 501c3, so we're, <laughs> we're a charity. We're always <laughs> dialing for dollars. We'd love to have more programming, but honestly, 90% of my time is spent begging for money to keep the place going and to be able to tell these incredible stories. And, and I think that if more Americans knew about us and what we are doing, creating, I, I'd say world-class programming. Yeah. That, that Women, Peace and Security event that you just described, it, it, that's exactly the cutting edge of what we, we need to understand how these cultural support teams and the female engagement teams actually interacted on the battlefield. How did they shape battlefield outcomes? Correct. That's fantastic. We're also unveiling a portrait of Shannon Kent, who was oh. Oh. a Navy senior chief, and she was killed in January of 2019 in Syria. So her husband, Joe, who was a uh, Army Special Forces Warrant Officer, he's coming to help unveil, as are her parents who live in Maryland, so close by. Yeah, I know. We're both getting a little choked up here. Yeah. But um, it's really important. We've had that portrait for over two years, but because of COVID and Joe and Shannon's little boys were too little, we, you know, we were not going to risk a family to COVID for an unveiling of a portrait. But it's, it's the perfect day to do that. And the women of the CSTs, while most of them are, are Army, Shannon Kent is a Navy linguist and all of the things that she has done. It's just, it's incredible. And it's a perfect day. And she is laid to rest at Arlington in section 60. We go down and, and talk to her. I talk to a lot of graves in Arlington. People think it's a little freaky that working at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery, I am telling you, it's the best place in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. You're what welcome. A profoundly important conversation. And I'm just so delighted you could be here. Thanks. 
Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.